Glam. Blog Talk Radio. Glam more, fear less. Diva Talk Radio. Mr. Divabetic Show. I'm your host, Mr. Divabetic, and I'm thrilled to be spending some time with you, especially during November, which is National Diabetes Awareness Month. Did you know that Thursday, November 14th, is World Diabetes Day? And they chose this date because it commemorates the birthday of Frederick Banting, who, along with Charles Best, are credited with the discovery of insulin in 1921. Now, isn't it hard to believe that the discovery of insulin wasn't even 100, hasn't even been 100 years old yet? I can't believe it, but I want to tell everyone out there living with diabetes that I think you're doing a phenomenal job. And when you think you're getting down, don't. You could always get Diva and know that you've got someone in your corner, which would be me and my whole team supporting you every step of the way. This month especially, we've got more events going on, more podcasts, and more ways for you to turn up your attitude. And that's some applause I wanted to give you right now because I think you deserve a standing ovation. Because I know for so many of you, uh, insulin might, only be, might be less than 100 years old, but you've probably been giving yourself more shots of insulin than you can count. And until there's a cure, you're probably not really celebrating. Some of you may be even thinking to yourself, why me? Why did this happen to me? And if you are, well, guess what? You're not alone because so many people today are dealing with uh, issues of depression, overwhelm, especially if you're newly diagnosed, burnout, that I invited my special friend, Dr. Lee Beverly S. Adler, who I fondly refer to as Dr. Bev, and so do many of her patients. She's a licensed clinical psychologist, certified diabetes educator, and speaker and author, who is also living with diabetes, to join me at the end of the show to talk to you about some healthy coping skills. So if you want to call in with a question, you can at 347-215-8551. And tonight's the night that, you know, we're going to be talking about diabetes all night, but we're also going to be talking a lot about some of our favorite hobbies because I want to boost your spirits and get you to laugh a little, learn a lot with an exciting line of guests, including best-selling author Marie Boswick, I'm such a fan, I just put down a single thread. What an awesome novel. The leader of the Diva Club in Cleveland, Marianne Nicolay. Peter Arpacella, who's an author, actor, and sailor. My good friend for a little Diva inspiration, Judith Jones Ambrosini. Dr. Beverly S. Adler. And making a special appearance on the Mr. Diva Medic Show is Mama Rosemarie. Tonight marks the last podcast in our Don't Let Diabetes Kill Romance series to raise awareness for sexual wellness issues related to diabetes in a fun and informative manner. The Don't Let Diabetes Kill Romance campaign wants you to know that if you're suffering from diabetes, sexual health-related issues, that you're not alone. We are here to help. 
The good news is that for many people who seek out treatment and adhere to proper diabetes self-care management, they can still enjoy a happily ever after like the characters in many of Marie Boswick's best-selling books, including the Cobbled Court book series. Tonight, I'm going to be focusing on passion and all the things in our life that absorb you, free you, challenge you, and give you a sense of meaning and joy. Did you know that when you focus on leading a passionate, meaningful life, you are inadvertently creating a spectacular ripple effect of inspiration in the lives around you? When one person follows a dream, tries something new, or takes a daring leap, everyone nearby feels passionate energy. And before too long, they're making their own daring leaps with simultaneously in, while simultaneously inspiring others. Now, I know living with diabetes is a day-to-day chore for many and a grind for others, but the passion is a reason that could really be a reason to wake you up in the morning and make you want to check your blood sugar one more time or go out and get some more exercise or decide today's the day you're going to give up fries and have a salad instead. And just that thought could keep you late up, can, with a passion can keep you up late at night with excitement. But I know not everyone knows exactly what their passion is or has found it right away. And if that's you, you could be just like me because I am so passionate about diabetes outreach. But if you had met me 10 years ago and asked me the same question about what's your passion, I probably would have answered theater, music, or entertainment because at the time I was working with Luther Vandross. So I found my passion later in life, and I'm so excited to share it with all of you. And I'm looking forward to traveling to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to be uh, headlining the AD Expo. I'm looking to coming to Philadelphia on November 16th for the Divabetic Victory Over Diabetes. I'll also be at SUNY Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn from November 12th to the 14th with the Plate Poetry Project. And on top of tonight's podcast, I'll be back next week with a brand new lineup of the Diabetes Roundtable. And guess what? My passion excited me, ignited this idea in me to do the Don't Let Diabetes Kill Romance. And not only have this series of podcasts been so popular, but it's also spawned inspiration in others. And next week, I'm excited to announce that um, best-selling author Cherry Adair will be joining me because she just wrote a new book called Ricochet, which has a leading character living with diabetes based on conversations she had with me. So that's what my passion has done, and I'm sure your passion, if you haven't found it yet, is going to lead to even more illustrious things in your future, and I would be so thrilled to celebrate it with you. But I truly believe if you're struggling with your passion, that inspiration is all around you. And you know, a diva medic, it's all about famous divas. So I have three divas. I actually have four divas who really inspire me to live my life with passion, and I wanted to share them with you. I think some may surprise you. The first diva that has really inspired me to kind of go after health and wellness is Suzanne Summers. Actually, she's best known for playing a dumb blonde, but she somehow managed to overcome people's narrow-minded opinions and, and go on to become a best-selling author, millionaire businesswoman, and healthcare advocate. With her, per- her perseverance and determination, the thigh master now helps women of all ages feel sexy long, long past the first gray hair they find. Suzanne says it's an honor to be passionate about your work, and it's an honor for others to recognize that commitment. The next woman is Italian, because I'm part uh, Italian myself, and her name is Madonna. Now, I've always been a fan of Madonna, but she has definitely inspired me. And a few weeks ago, I learned that Madonna was raped at knife point when she first moved to New York City. I was shocked, I think, by like millions by this news. 
And I could see how it would be understandable if after you had a life experience like that, that, you could easily, that could, it could easily kill your passion to achieve your dreams. But get inspiration from Madonna, because look what she's been able to accomplish in her lifetime. She's considered the best-selling female recording artist of all time, and she's sold over 300 million records worldwide. Finally, the next diva who inspires me is so passionate, she has a best-selling perfume named Passion. Actress Elizabeth Taylor was an actress for most of her life, but she became a champion in the fight for HIV and AIDS, proving that new opportunities could happen at any age. At a time when AIDS was considered a mysterious disease that was taking the lives of many gay men, there was so much fear and uncertainty about how it was being transmitted. But Elizabeth Taylor didn't let that stop her, and she refused to treat HIV and AIDS sufferers like lepers and continued to share a message of love and acceptance. Elizabeth Taylor dedicated her life to helping others with a health condition she wasn't even living with. She wasn't gay, she wasn't a man, and she didn't have HIV or AIDS, and yet look at what she was able to accomplish. Now stay tuned, because you're about to meet my number one diva, the number one diva in my life who inspires me to live my life with passion. But before we do, help spread the power of love by showing your support to our dazzling brand of diabetes outreach by donating today at divabetic.org. Your tax-deductible contributions are greatly appreciated. Now, let's get on with the show. Wow, that music sounds kind of familiar. Guess what, everybody? It's probably no surprise I'm going to introduce you to my number one diva, She's inspired me to have an active imagination. She's inspired me to be a better man, and she inspires me every day to keep reaching for my dream in the face of all opposition. She proves to me that having a wide range of hobbies in your life is a great way to live. She's not only passionate about reading, playing cards, water aerobics, holidays, especially Christmas, but she's also very passionate about her family and her friends. She's honestly been inspiring me my entire life, so please welcome to the show my mom, Mama Rosemary. Hello, Mama Rosemary. Oh, thank you. Hello, Hello Mr. Uh, Bedick. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for asking me to join you tonight. Well, you're my special guest, Mom, because you're the reason why I'm even doing these podcasts. If it weren't for you, I would have never gone to the um, book fair in Columbia, South Carolina, where we got to meet Kim Boykin. And that uh, day we spent together, because you're such a big reader and you're part of so many reading groups yourself, inspired me to want to start to reach out to romance writers as well as women fiction writers like Marie Boswick, who's coming up a little later, and really spread a message about um, helping people um, understand and, and want to talk to their doctors more about issues concerning intimacy. So you're, you've been a huge inspiration in that one little thumbnail of my life. <laughs> Well, thank you. I'm glad I inspired you to do that. It's a wonderful cause. And, you love um, to read. You, yes, right? I do, and that is a passion of mine. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Well, you used to read I us as kids. So reading. You did, and you did read one of Marie Boswick's books, did you not? Oh, yes, I did. I read her um, book, and I read several of, um, of uh, Kim 
books can boykins also. I read her book also. It's been wonderful. I'm glad that um, you've introduced me, and I'm glad to these romance books because um, I go always and I belong to two book clubs. They are a passion of mine. This is my favorite week of the month, the first week, because I went to the library club yesterday morning, and I'm going to my friend's book club on tomorrow evening. And the library book club is wonderful. So those of you who don't belong to a book club and don't know how to start one, I would suggest walking into your library and see if they have a book club forming. Um, I've met many people that way. We've discussed many books. I've really thoroughly enjoyed all the books that I have been reading and discussing. And sometimes even if I go in there and say, oh, I don't like that book, after the discussion, I really liked it. So I encourage people to go there, and that's one way of starting it. Otherwise, start it with your friends. It's wonderful to get to know different people. And with the book club, you do get to know them. Um, You know, these authors put a lot of research into their books. We learn a little bit, no matter what kind of a book we read, whether it's a romance, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, historical fiction. We always learn something. As as I said, they put a lot of their time and effort into research, so we get to enjoy their fruits of of their labor, so... Now, I you encourage also love, everybody to read. You also have a passion for playing games and playing cards. So you're a member. You're a member. I want people to see how full your life is because a lot of people who are listening might be transitioning from, uh, you know, everyone moves around the country. We know I did from New York to California, back to New York. But people are making all these moves, having to relocate and start to build friendships over again. Now, you did that kind of later in your life. You moved to South Carolina about 10 years ago. And instead of just kind of shutting yourself out, you kind of went into these rooms and met people not only through book clubs, you form friendships with your workout clubs, and then you even play cards with friends. So, you know, someone listening tonight is very tentative about wanting to take the first step. What would you, try, what would you say to someone to get to kind of um, pursue the passions in their life with hobbies? Well, I would just say try to be courageous. I know it's difficult moving to a new city, and um, especially it was for me because I was in a later age, and when you don't have children in school, it's difficult to meet people. But I found that if I had the courage and walked into an adult center and knocked on the door there and asked if there were any card-playing groups or anything that I could join, and um, it's been a real benefit for me, and I've made an awful lot of friends. And as you know, I don't ever want to miss my afternoons of car playing, just like I don't want to miss my meetings of book club. So, and, you know, um, we're talking... I encourage people to have courage. Go ahead. I love it. And we're going to be talking a little bit about depression and diabetes later on. So I, I assume that your hobbies and your interests have helped you get past the day when you're blue. Is that true? Oh, definitely, definitely. And I've seen it in other people. Also, there have been some... Um, widows who play cards with me and um, and they've come in and been blue and then after an afternoon of playing cards and having a few laughs you could tell how their disposition has changed it's just been um really mood changing for a lot of people and i do encourage people to get into a group uh they need that they need that very much okay so now everyone's going to want to know 
everyone's going to know what Mama Rose is reading. So you read Fields of Gold by Marie Boswick, and now what are you, what's on your shelf right now? Well, I was telling Marie that I read The Aviator's Wife just before that, and um, that was I enjoyed that book very much. It was one that I encouraged everybody to read. I do like historical fiction, um, and uh, right now we're reading this glistening world for our um, Wednesday night group. So what is we'll it called? be discussing that tomorrow night. This glistening world, it's a mystery. So we try to do different books all the time, romance and mysteries and historical fiction and, you know, biographies. We try to mix it all up. So it's all right, great. So- Finally, I just want to say, I would have a blue Christmas without you. You love the holidays. You came to New York City for your 50th wedding anniversary, and we went to see the Christmas Spectacular. And coming up later, Marie Boswick is go- uh, actually wrote a Christmas story about a disgruntled Rockette. But I want you to try to explain to people around the country who, who've never been to Radio City Music Hall, because I know you're a huge fan of the show, what is it like to see this Christmas Spectacular? Well, um, I, it just is spectacular. There's no other word for it. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful Christmas show. It hits on everything, whether it's just um, the rockets dancing and uh, the little ice skating they have and different uh, stories of Christmas. It's all enfolded in the one program. It's wonderful. It makes you Christmas. And I was so fortunate to be in New York around Christmas time because I love to see the lights. And um, it's the spirit of Christmas. Um, I think we all need that. Uh, in the dead of winter, uh, it's just a wonderful spirit for everybody to um, to cheer with their friends. Just a great time. And I've always loved Christmas, as you said before. I, I love decorating. I love having parties. And I love... Um, having people over for a little glass of champagne or um, and giving gifts. Of course, you know that. That's my favorite thing about Christmas. <laughs> well, and you gave me the biggest gift, and I want everyone to know this. When I first started DivaBetic, I was extremely tentative about it, and I came up with my first T-shirt, and I was in South Carolina visiting, and my sister-in-law, Laura Zadek, who is a certified diabetes educator, um, was hosting an event, and you did me the honor. Not only did you come and help me sell my first T-shirt, you were there, but also the day before when I explained the idea to you, you came up with all these great ways to merchandise it. So you've been there every step of the way with Divabetic and really taking my dream and my passion and kind of made it your own. You, you come to as many shows as you and Dad can. You always put on a spectacular display because you're so creative and artistic, and I, I just, Mom, I just want to say thank you for um, just inspiring me to do what I do. I, I could not have ever done it without you. So tonight's all about passion and helping someone out there ignite their passion. And sometimes it's right in your own backyard, the people who could help celebrate and lift you to a higher level. And you did that for me. So it's fun to celebrate National Diabetes Awareness Month with you. Our family is affected by diabetes. Uh, your mom had diabetes. Your son and my brother has, have diabetes, and so, um, you know, it's an honor to continue to outreach to everyone and uh, have you be not only a, a regular on the roundtable, but also I'm going to see you live at Divabetic Victory Over Diabetes next weekend. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for the compliments. It's been a pleasure working with you, um, and I'm looking forward 
to being in Philadelphia next weekend, the weekend of the 16th. All right. Have a good night. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it, and good luck with everything this weekend in Pittsburgh and next week in Philadelphia. That'll be great. All right. Ciao for now. We'll play her out with a little applause. Can you ever give your mom enough applause? I don't think so. She raised four boys. She did an awesome job. I'm probably the run of the litter, but the other ones are pretty amazing. Uh, Guess what, everybody? Not only do I do the podcast, I travel all around the country and I do outreach, and especially during National Diabetes Month, I'd love to meet you. So if you're in Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, or New York, please uh, take a minute to introduce yourself to me, and you can always email me at mrdivabetic at gmail.com or or join the Divabetic Facebook pages like Peter Aparcelli, Judith Jones, Ambrosini, and Dr. Bev, and then we could all follow each other on Twitter and Facebook and have a great time. Now, guess what? Coming up, I'm not going to be there, but in Cleveland, Ohio, at the Diabetes Partnership of Cleveland, the Divas love to pass the bow as it's been going on for seven years. Please welcome back to the show the Diva Club leader of Cleveland, Ohio, Miss Marianne Nicolay. Hello, Marianne. Hi, Max. Hi, how are you? Spectacular now that you're here. (laughs) Oh, that's so sweet. Now, you know, Marianne, uh, we're going to be talking about quilts in a minute, coming up with Mary Boswick, and I know um, the Diva Club is working on one. We're going to talk about that in a second. But, you know, tonight I'm really focusing on passions that we have. You obviously are passionate about diabetes outreach. You've been hosting this club for seven years in Cleveland. What has it been like for you personally? Um, it's it's just a wonderful group of women. Um, I, I don't always like working on the weekends because that's my time, but um, this is one weekend that I look forward to, and I've been thinking back. I've only missed two diva sessions in the past seven years, and I always make room for that and make time for that because it's important. The ladies are wonderful. We work well together, and we just lift each other up, and I really... I really look forward to the Saturday Diva sessions. Did you become friends with someone that surprised you through the group? Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of neat ladies in the group. Everybody brings something different. And um, um, there's one woman that I just um, I miss because um, she had a stroke and isn't able to come back to the Diva sessions just yet. And hopefully she'll be able to, but... Whenever she'd come in, she'd come up and give me the biggest hug, and I just miss that so much. I miss that hug. But we do a lot of hugging at at the Diva Sessions. Um, We've just come to rely on each other in so many different ways that um, it's just a really special group of women. Um, Just I don't know how else to say it. It's just so special. No, and I I said that because uh, there's a really amazing group of women in Marie Boswick's A Single Thread book, and it's mm-hmm. all about these women who surprise each other with their friendships, and um, I, I, I think they're surprised that they become friends, so I was kind of curious yeah, with the Diva yeah. Club just how surprised we are at the people we meet who, who become lifelong friends of ours. Now, uh, we're going to be talking about quits quilts later on because Marie's a big fan, so the women at the Diva Club are working on a quilt? Right. A couple of years ago, well, uh, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say it was probably last year, um, we, I was at home making a quilt because I am a quilter also. 
and I was working on a quilt and I was thinking about the diva program and getting, you know, kind of getting prepared in my mind for the upcoming uh, meeting. And I just started to think, I wish we could do some quilting in the divas. And I came up with this idea. I'm thinking about the ups and downs of diabetes. And then I thought of yo-yos because yo-yos go up and down. And then I thought of yo-yo quilts. And so we started making um, yo-yos, which are round pieces of fabric that are gathered up into a little disc. And then the little discs are all sewn together to make a big quilt. And so at each session, starting that next year, at each session, we talked about the ups and downs of diabetes, and we had on our tables everything we needed to make yo-yo quilts, or the yo-yos for our quilt. And everybody, you know, not everybody is handy that way, but everybody tried to make at least one yo-yo to put into our quilt. And um, one of the divas just reminded me last month that we haven't done anything with the yo-yos yet. So we are going to, for 2014, start to put that yo-yo quilt together. And it's going to be more like a a wall hanging. But we're going to put it together and um, get that going again. But that's not unusual for quilters. Sometimes you start something and then you set it it down for a while and then you come back to it. So that's not unusual for quilters. No, I'm dying to ask Marie about being a procrastinator because I think quilters are, you know, you can put it down and then you you go out and you buy all this great fabric and then you forget that you had it in there for uh, two months later or something. Oh, you never forget you have the fabric. You never forget about that. (laughs) You just forget to use it. You, You add it to your collection. That's all. You just all right. Well, now you're going to help me bridge quilting to diabetes, which, um, okay. you know, I'd love to talk about needles. But first, I want to talk about patterns because, you know, I, I love I'm, I'm somewhat of a fashionista. And I know there's such a thing in diabetes called uh, diabetes pattern management, which I was kind yep. of thrilled when I heard about. But I actually um, I had this feeling it's not about finding the most stylish accessory, is it? It's not about finding the most stylish accessory. No. Um, When we talk about pattern management, we're talking about looking at blood glucose readings over a period of time, five to seven days a week, maybe longer than that. So we kind of want to think of it this way. Um, Checking your blood glucose or your blood sugar level gives you a snapshot, a photograph of what your blood glucose is at that very moment. Your logbook or some people do grafting or um, the memory in your blood glucose meter is like the photo album. It keeps all of those snapshots together. When you look at all of the snapshots together, you see a greater, bigger picture, and this is what's called the pattern. Um, Sometimes a lot of people are going to react to a single blood glucose level that might be out of target range, Um, but they don't always understand the bigger picture. And the big picture is your overall blood glucose control. That's really what we're looking at. So, so if you're seeing well, like up yeah. and down and up and down like the yo-yo yeah. uh, quilt that you just talked about, what does yeah. that say? Well, um, we have to look and, and look at that pattern and look at those um, different ups and downs and try to determine what's going on. Um, That's called pattern management. When we look at all of those little snapshots and see if there are any trends, if somebody tends to be going high or consistently going low, we need to take a look at that and try to figure out why. Um, First, we need to see if there's a pattern. 
or a trend, and then we need to see what we want to do about that. We've got to find some way to, to fix that. Now, so uh, Catherine Schuler, who's a diva, Vedic image and style advisor, always tells me to avoid horizontal stripes, but I have a feeling in diabetes pattern man- management, a horizontal stripe might be ideal. Um, you know, it's not bad. As long as your horizontal stripe is staying within your target ranges, your glycemic target ranges, you don't want a hor- horizontal um, stripe that's going too high or too low. You want it to stay right in that normal um, target range for your blood sugar level. I love it. Now, so it might not you know, be you, a bad thing. You have a really interesting way of dealing with the blues and depression with diabetes. You guys at the Diva Club throw a pity party every year. Can you tell yeah. everyone a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, this month, um, as a matter of fact, this Saturday, we're having our annual pity party. And normally when folks come to the Diva, um, Diva Club, there's no moaning and groaning and whining and bitching allowed. We want to come together and learn about diabetes and Im- take that knowledge and empower ourselves to do better or to just take on diabetes. So if somebody needs help, that's okay. We want to help them, but there's no wallowing in it. You know, we need to take it on, except for our pity party. And that's when you come in and you're, you better moan and groan and whine and bitch and complain about what's happening in your life so that we can take those, those issues and learn how to deal with them and turn them around into something powerful, something more empowering. And so um, this month on Saturday when we have our Diva Pity Party, we're going to be working with a um, counselor, and she is going to um, help us understand diabetes and depression. And take us through some exercises to understand what it is, understand what we can do about it, uh, how we can recognize it, what we can do about it, and then how we can take that and empower ourselves to be the best person we can be. I love it. I think that's phenomenal. I kind of want to join the pity party, but I'll be hosting the Diabetes Fairy Tales in Pittsburgh, PA, so you have to give me an update and we'll post it on the blog. Quickly, before you go, Marianne, what are you reading? Because everyone loves your book reviews. I am not reading anything this week because I have been working on a quilt. When when you told me about the quilter, I started a cathedral window quilt. And so my quilt is gorgeous. And when it's done, you're going to put that on your blog and you're going to drool because it's gorgeous. I will, and I'll pass it on to Marie Boswick, who's coming up next, best-selling author. Thanks for being part of the show. You're welcome. Have fun at the party. We will. (laughs) <laughs> All right, everybody. Guess what? Are you like Mama Rose? You've got to get out of your comfort zone if you're getting down. We want you to get diva. If you're having a problem finding your passion, it may be because you're used to doing the same old thing that you don't have the guts to try anything new. If you really want to find your pass- passion, then you have to test yourself and step out of your comfort zone to find something that really appeals to you. Did you ever think about bird watching? How about doing some crossword puzzles or taking a pottery class? What about bowling or yodeling or kayaking or painting? Well, guess what? My next guest can't wait to kayak. That's her dream. And uh, I don't know if she has any time, though. She's so busy doing so many other things. She was just in Houston at a major quilt show. She's a best-selling New York Times, also 
USA Today. I'm I'm looking for my intro to her. I'm so excited because I'm holding her book right here, everybody. I'm not going to waste any more time. I want to tell you that uh, my featured author tonight, she's so fabulous. I enjoyed reading her book so much. She's a best-selling author of uplifting historical and contemporary fiction. Please welcome to the show Marie Boswick. Hello, Marie. Hi, Max. How are you? I'm better now that you're on the show. You know, you have a really special place in my heart because when I uh, when I was getting when I contacted you to see if you would be on the show, I was visiting uh, South Carolina to uh, for my niece's wedding. She's now Jacqueline Creekmore, and it was a beautiful wedding. And so I told my mom, "Can you go to the library and just see if you could pick up some of Marie's books? I want to read them before the interview." So I did, and um, I when I left, my mother picked up the books and started reading them too. So we've been kind of going back and forth talking about you for the last month and a half. So it's been kind of a wonderful experience for us to share your books. Oh, I love that. That's great to hear. Now, you just got back from a quilt show. So I yes, think I, I got back from first. the mother of all quilt shows. Yeah, what was that? I saw lots of pictures. What was that like? Well, the Houston International Quilt Festival is the largest quilt show in the United States of America, the creme de la creme show there. <clears throat> I want to say I, I make some nice quilts, but I will never have a quilt at Houston. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Um, these people are just at the top of their game. They are from all over the world. And it's just stunning quilts. And I think um, the attendance at Houston is above 65,000 people go to that show. So that gives you an idea of the scale. Wow, and you said uh, on Facebook that you had a bus driver who said, if only the quilters could stay year-round, they're such lovely people, right? He said, if the world would be a better place if the quilters were running it, and I I agree. It would also be very colorful. (laughs) So what came first in your life, writing or quilting? Oh, the writing. Um, you know, I pretty much started writing as soon as I could hold a pencil in my hand. I, I mean that pretty much literally. Um, the first thing I, I recall writing was something when I was, I know I wasn't six, so I'm guessing I was probably four or five. I was a really early reader. I was reading when I was three, um, and I was writing right away. And the first thing I remember writing is um, being at my grandmother's house and listening to the soundtrack for Camelot. And I hadn't seen the movie. So I was, I now know the word for it. I wouldn't have known it then. I was, essentially, I was trying to write a screenplay to go with the songs because it bothered me that I didn't have a story to make the songs hang together. I love it. Did you like recruit your neighborhood kids to be in it like I did? No, that came later. I pretty much spent um, a lot of time alone as a child. <laughs> well, then, okay, so then, um, and, and, and I read that on your blog, that's where it really began to foster your imagination, which is so strange about kids today because they have their cell phones and all those things. They don't really get a lot of alone time, you know, where you just get to think and, and use your imagination. And I... Um, have to tell you, like, I didn't get to read this story yet, but The High Kicking Christmas, I think, is so imaginative. My mo- I took my mom to see The Christmas Spectacular at Radio City Music Hall. And then Isn't I actually, it the greatest? Yeah, and I went on the tour. So tell every – I know this is just a, a small little thing, and you have a new one coming out this year as well, but this is a part of a, a Fern uh, – there's another author. Fern Michaels and yeah. Anthology. And, and, and I'm trying to remember if that book was called, the book I think was called Comfort, Comfort and Joy. Joy. 
Yeah. Thank you. I haven't seen it for a while. My story in it was called A High Kicking Christmas. And let me explain. Um, these are part of holiday anthologies. I've now done a third one that actually came out just this week. And everyone should run to their bookstore immediately and pick it up, by the way. <laughs> that one is, uh, yeah, that one's called Secret Santa. But this one a few years ago, High Kicking Christmas, that was my first time I had done something like that. And I didn't have much time to, to write it. And my initial pass um, was a big failure. I sort of had this idea, and I called up my sister, Betty, who I talk to my sister pretty much every day um, at about 4 o'clock, and I read her the rushes of the day. I read her, you know, what I've been working on. Mm -hmm. And so I read her this idea that I had, and she was like, blech, blech. and I was like, what? And she said, it's Christmas. Would you quit trying to be so serious and literary and everything? So... <laughs> I went back and thought, all right, hmm, I need a problem and I need it to be Christmassy. Well, I adore the Christmas spectacular. I didn't go until I was almost 40, and now I go like every year. And I've drugged friends, and I just love it. And I thought, well, what could be better than that? But then I needed a problem. And so I thought, hmm, well, why would a rockette have a problem? Because that seems like an ideal life to me. But then I realized... Yeah, but if you came to New York thinking that you, when you were really young and you got to be a rockette, thinking it was going to lead to, you know, leading lady Broadway stardom status, and 10 years later it had still led to being a rockette, you might be kind of over Christmas by that point. So that's where that book came about. No, I, I love it. And I, I love the idea that the rockette was kind of burned out. And, and uh, Kendra is the name of that character, by the mm -hmm. way, everybody. Um I, I was just uh, fascinated. Now, so many of, of your books, uh, you you started out in historical fiction. Then you wrote a book about the women in the Air Force, the WASP. Yes, the WASP, the Women's Air Service Pilots. And uh, I read somewhere where you said, you know, how extraordinary these women were. I was kind of, you know, I I don't know that much about the air the Women's Service Air Force pilots. So, what about what about their story captured you that you wanted to write about them? Well, they were incredibly brave and incredibly patriotic and I think incredibly badly treated um, by their country. I, as I read more and more about them, I mean, they were doing this. They were, not that much has changed, but actually a lot has changed. But they were doing the same job that the male pilots were doing. They were getting paid less. They were not militarized, so they didn't get any of the recognition or the benefits that a male pilot would have gone. And let me tell you, the thing that made me so angry, I literally, when I read this, I screamed out loud and stomped around my house for a while. When these young women were killed in the line of duty, because they were not part of the official part of the military, the United States government didn't even pay to ship their bodies back home. Their sisters wow. in, in flight would take up collections to send the bodies of these brave, brave, patriotic women who were giving their all in the war effort to bring them home to their families. That angered me. And I just, I wanted people to know about these incredible women and the sacrifices they made. I think that's phenomenal. I mean, I think what you, I, I'm, now I, I want to pick up that book. Well, I, and I just put down a book. So you kind of took this idea of extraordinary women and women in different circumstances, and, you'd, and uh, you went a different direction in women's fiction and started with a book called A Single Thread and went uh, focused on a group of, well, they would be much more ordinary than the women you just described, but women who yes. live up in Connecticut 
And they, um, I was asking Marianne about this. The, all th- the main characters in this book, the four females, are all from way, just from so different mm-hmm. a place. They have nothing in common, and yet they right. form this kind of incredible bond, um, which we're going to talk about in a second. But before we do, did, you, it, did this parallel your friendships in life? Because I'm wondering where you came up with this idea of people being so apples and oranges. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. And these characters that are in a single thread, and you find, you know, these characters recur in the other books in that series and then some new people, they are so different. And I have to say that as a quilter, I have made very, very good friends where we are just as different. And if it weren't for quilting, we probably wouldn't be friends. And I'll tell you what the difference is. They're good people. They're different than me. But the quilting, I think, allows us to give each other a chance, you know what I mean? Whereas we might meet somebody initially and just sort of dismiss them because they don't feel like they're part of our tribe. If we can talk about the quilting, it extends the time that we're sort of, um, you know, dating. You know, when you have like a new Mm -hmm. friend, you kind of go through the dating part. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of dating and you realize that, okay, there are some things and ways in which we're very different, but guess what? When you get down to it, we have a lot in common. And so the quilting, you know, the the books are not about quilting. The books are about the relationship between the characters. The quilting is what brings the characters together. So you, you hit the nail on the head, sir. Well, and Marie, you have this wonderful passage in your book, which I'm going to read, about quilting and comparing it to life. I always tell students that quilts are made up of straight lines, but it isn't true. Quilts are made of broken lines just like life. Over and over again, we try to walk a straight path but run into dead ends, sharp corners, uneven ground that cuts us off and forces us to change direction. Sometimes it's painful, other times it's joyful. But it isn't until you take a moment to stand still, step off the line, and back away that you finally see the truth. Those unexpected turns and startling about faces, that chaotic path, it wasn't chaotic at all. When you step back and you see where you have been, you discover the shape, the reason, the intricacy, beautiful, the interest, inc- <clears throat> intricately beautiful pattern and vivid colors of life stitched together from, what one, from one point to another. Had seemed m- nothing more than mismatched scraps of broken lines. Stepping back, you see that there has been a design all along and a designer. I just, I don't know, that was just amazing to me. I, I know I butchered it, but I really enjoyed reading it. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that um, that's kind of my, that right there. That's pretty much my philosophy of life right there. And it's and your philosophy is in these books because you have like a. I want to talk about this because I'm going to be talking to Peter Opperselli later, and he wrote an amazing book called Good Like um, Good Like This about a man living with diabetes as a central character who goes through a life change. In a single thread, you really focus on breast cancer. And you have a woman who um, is at the age of 40. She's at a crossroads. She's had a lot of things happen to her very quickly where she um, has gone through a divorce. She decides to make some very quick life-altering decisions, and then she's saddlebagged with the idea of, of, of being diagnosed with breast cancer. She is diagnosed with breast cancer. And then her life goes in a whole new direction. And I found that like so inspirational. But I'm wondering, as a writer, where did you really find, um, because you have so many great messages for women who might be living with breast cancer as far as like 
this woman, Evelyn, she, goes, she seeks out different opinions. She does a lot of research. She, she sees her options, which you describe in detail. And it really is something that someone reading this book can gain a lot of knowledge about what their friend, their mother, their sister is going through with breast cancer. How did you do the research for this? Well, I will tell you, if, if that book um, rings true, and I've been privileged to get a lot of mail that say that it does from breast cancer survivors, it is because of the survivors themselves. I reached out to various people who have gone through it and interviewed them, and they were so transparent about sharing their stories. They were so generous with their time and their emotion. I mean, they really opened the door and let me inside their life during that period of time. And the reason they did it was because they want, I found this over and over again in breast cancer survivors particularly, but I'm sure it's true in lots of things. And I think it's probably true with what you're doing with the diabetics. You want this experience to have had some meaning. And the best way it might have some meaning is for you to be able to help somebody else who is not quite as far down that road as you are. And so I, you know, it brings, uh, it brings some purpose to these difficulties that we go through and a very good purpose. So it's really, it's really due to the women. And I, I just love it's entertaining and you stay for the message and you walk away with it. You know, I mean, I have to tell you, um, cause we're getting ready to play a game. My favorite character, one of my favorite characters in the book is Abigail. <laughs> Isn't she? <laughs> She's so dismissive. <laughs> Uh, this is a character that people have to read about. But how do you know a woman like Abigail? Oh, goodness, I've known millions of Abigails. Okay, because I feel like they live on Park Avenue. I don't know about Connecticut. They but are in Park Avenue, but every town has a couple. They're very dismissive women, everyone. You have to read the book to find out more about her, and she goes through a but huge you know, life but Abigail, But Abigail is likable. I mean, that's what oh, I actually no, – I, I mean, I think we love... She's really, really likable because she actually she's, – she's very commanding, and she is kind of used to getting her own way, but, but she is totally ready to, to use those abilities for other people if she likes you, which is going to be a big if. She's super likable because she's, she has this quality where she's judging people and her, her comments about people that she's having inside her head because it's written in the first person with her and, and um, mm-hmm. are hysterical. I, I, I just, if you live it, I mean, I think anyone would just get a big hoot out of, uh, out of reading about Abigail. I definitely, there's six books in the series. It's called The Cobbled Court, correct? And the first The Cobbled is, Court Quilt Books, yeah. Yes. Okay, so guess what, Marie? What? I love to play games at Divabetic, and you're about to play the first game. Oh, I'm excited. Yay. It's gone, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> For Sue, you want to be a quilter. Okay, these are trivia questions for you, um, Marie. Question, oh my what gosh. is generally accepted the lifespan of cotton fabrics? Is it 70, 80, 90, or 100 years old? And really I'm going to say I'm going to say 70. You are? Or maybe not? <laughs> oh, darn it. <laughs> <laughs> it's 100 years. <laughs> Shoot. Okay. Okay, next question. That was my next choice. <laughs> the symbol is thought to have originated in what European country? Germany, Holland, or Italy? Uh, I want to say Germany. 
gosh. <laughs> Holland, this is the very Dutch upsetting. are thought to have invented a bell-shaped thumb shield used by tailors and sailors. <sighs> okay. According to superstition, you should n- I don't know why I always find it so funny when people get things wrong, but according to superstition, you should not <laughs> quilt at all, at all on what day of the week. Is it Monday, Friday, or Sunday? Friday. Oh my gosh, this is really, you know, where are the questions where I know the answers? I felt pretty, I felt pretty confident. I thought, for sure you would, I thought for sure you would get that right. Okay, guess what? Sunday, gonna... I always quilt on Sunday because Sunday is the only day I don't actually work. Oh, because oh, you're writing, are you writing all the, and most people want to know that. Are you writing all the time? Yes, because I'm very slow. I have to work harder than other writers. All right, well, because you screwed all of those up, I'm going to give you another chance. So now. <laughs> if you just tuned in, we're playing games with best-selling author Marie Boswick. Coming up on the show, I've got Peter Apicelli, and he wrote an amazing book called Good Like This, plus my good friend Judith Jones Ambrosini, celebrating over five decades of living with diabetes. She's here to tell us how to inspire the sisterhood of diabetes. Gather around, ladies, because it's time to get active. And then finally, Dr. Bev uh, is going to help give some coping skills to people. It's National Diabetes Awareness Month. I'm Mr. Divabetic, and I'm all about playing games. So we're going to play another game with Marie Boswick. Okay, it's all about fiber. I'm calling it Foxy Fiber. Are you ready for your fiber okay. questions? I, I certainly hope I'm more ready than I was for the last set. Let's okay, give it a one, try, shall we? This one's got a little bit more diabetes bent to it. Okay, here's your first fiber question. Experts say that fiber can be beneficial to our health if, consumed, if we consume how many grams per day? Is it 5 grams per 1,000 calories? Is it B, 10 grams per 1,000 calories? Or is it C, 14 grams per 1,000 calories? Okay, I'm going with 14 because it seems to me like more is more. Are you are you sure about that? Oh my gosh! You're telling. Oh, you yay. Right. oh thank it's heaven! Okay. For a thousand calories, and the typical American only eats twelve grams a day, so we need to get that up, everybody. Okay, Indeed. Marianne, which of the following foods contains the least amount of fiber? Is it one ounce of pumpkin seeds shelled, or one cup of iceberg lettuce, or a half a cup of tomato sauce? Uh, the iceberg lettuce. I feel pretty confident about this. Wow, the correct answer is iceberg lettuce. And if you're listening, don't be fooled by iceberg lettuce. It's because no. it's crunchy. It contains less than one. It contains like one gram of fiber. Tomato sauce only contains a surprising little amount. And pumpkin, ski, pumpkin seeds. Oh, I'm sorry. It was the least amount of fiber. Is is iceberg lettuce? Tomato sauce has 2.6 grams of fiber, and pumpkin seeds have the most amount of fiber with 10 grams of fiber. Pumpkin seeds are our friends. Yes, they are. So I'm sorry if I screwed that up for people, but go to our website, divabetic.org. That way I don't have to mumble. You could just read it at your own pace. <laughs> All right, here's your final question. Which is the champion of fiber content among veggies? Is it A, peas, B, beans, C, carrots? Beans. Wow, she did pretty good, right, everybody? Beans are fiber See, I'm rich. Kind of, have I'm kind of a nutrition trivia nut, so yeah. You, you are, do you love to cook at home? I do cook at home, yeah, and I'm I'm pretty uh, I'm I'm pretty careful about what I eat. Oh, except for okay, somebody, well, though somebody's going to like say that they saw me eating Reese's at Houston, and I'm sorry, but I also had kale salad, lots of it. Kale is good. 
Kale is really good. Do you have a great recipe for kale? Actually, I'm trying to figure out. There's um, a restaurant. Well, there's the Houston's restaurant and Hillstone restaurants. They have this kale salad that I am not even joking about this. I order one for my for my appetizer, and then I will order another one for dessert. I and love if it. I could, I adore it. And I have not been able to to find the recipe anywhere. So, like, if anybody has that recipe, I would totally trade you books for that. <laughs> and they could check you out on Facebook. You are fa- you're fabulous. I loved. I've read three of your books. I love Mary Dell. We didn't even get to talk about about Mary Dell. We'll have to do. I have to <laughs> She's have come great. Back on we'll another. do it another time. So, uh, Marie, what do you have coming up? And then tell everyone how they could come find out more about you. Right. Well, what I have coming up is just uh, a week ago today, I did have another little Christmas story in the anthology um, Secret Santa. And the lead, it's going to say Fern Michaels and then like the other guys. I'm one of the other guys in that one. Um, And I've got a book in there called The Yellow Rose of Christmas, which is about Marydale's Aunt Velvet, who gets a secret, who is a lifelong spinster, but she's got a secret admirer just around Christmas. So that's a sweet story, and I hope people will go get that. Um, I also will have another book coming, another Cobbled Corp book coming out at the end of April called Apart at the Seams. And so if people wanted to get a jump on that, they could pre-order that now. Um, to get connected with me, you can obviously go to my website, which is mariebostwick.com, or you can search out my fan page, not my personal page, my fan page on Facebook. It'll have a picture of my, uh, the avatar will have a picture of my book and, and like it because I'm on there. As you know, I'm on there every morning. I, I follow of, you all the time, and I want everyone to know, I didn't read the cobbled court in sequence, and I didn't miss a beat. I, I kind of went It doesn't matter. From, three to one to the prequel and it was fabulous so thank you so much for being a part of the show oh it's so much fun to be here thanks a lot all right have a good night (laughs) guess what everybody thanks marie okay guess what everybody We're going all in for National Diabetes Awareness Month, and we're talking about wonderful writers who've come out with phenomenal books this year. Later on in the show, you're going to meet Dr. Bev, and you're going to meet my good friend Judith Jones-Ambrosini, who's about to publish her first book. But one of the books that caught my eye this year, and I'm thrilled to have him back on the show, is a book called Good Like This. And I just think uh, we were talking to Marie a little bit earlier about how you could pack a message into an entertaining uh, Joyride, and this book from, uh, I couldn't put it down. I enjoyed reading all about the trials and tribulations of a character uh, right here in New York City and uh, a man living with type 1 diabetes who goes through a lot but comes out on top. How's that? I didn't even want to make it rhyme. So please welcome my friend Peter Apercelli to the show. Hello, Peter. Hi, Max. How are you? I'm better. <laughs> now that I'm talking to you and we're talking about good like this, Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm so much better. I was like, I just wanted to take a minute to... Oh, uh, that's wonderful. Yes. All right. So let's talk about this book because a lot of people haven't bought, have not purchased it yet. And tonight I'm going to sell some books because I, I, I love Marie's books. So please buy Marie's books, but then buy this book as well because it's so good. This is based on one this of your great. screenplays because you're, you're a screenwriter. Yeah. You're also an actor, but this is based on one of your screenplays. So tell everyone kind of the basic storyline for this book. Um, well, 
basically life is spectacular for this um, successful family. Uh, he is an ambitious investment banker. She's a successful artist. They have a lovely and talented seven-year-old daughter. Um, but something happens when the wall of their secret comes crashing down on them because one night during a passionate adventure between uh, Paul and Candice, the, the couple that, were, that is the, the lead of our story, Paul discovers that uh, she has been uh, a closet addict for the best part of their relationship, and he feels extremely uh, hurt and righteous about it because he comes from a, uh, a story of addiction with his family of origin. And uh, things get really, really difficult. And uh, what is the unexpected turn of events is that uh, it takes no time for Candace to say, well, listen, uh, first of all, I'm not an addict, which is what all addicts would say. And second of all, you know, who are you to talk like this about me the way you deal with your type 1 diabetes? And he is extremely offended and righteous about it because, by God, he has a disease and a chronic one, uh, no less. And so things really change when, through a series of events and by Paul reluctantly hooking up in a on a uh, research project on the effects of stress, um, he realizes that there isn't that much of a difference between an addict like his wife and somebody who chooses to not take care of themselves, uh, even if they have uh, a health condition like himself with diabetes. And uh, this awareness, this realization is what changes his life and the life of the people around him and then the New York City Marathon, which just happened, mm -hmm. becomes the uh, unexpected and uh, gripping uh, finale where the bright new life uh, will begin. It's an amazing story, everybody. And it's just not for someone living with diabetes. It's for the people around them. I mean, I, I found this book so educational, entertaining. I, I thought you did such an amazing job of getting into that mindset of the person living with diabetes. And like you said, both of the main characters are addicted to denial. So, Peter, I have to ask, like, where did the, I know, like, sometimes stories harbor in people for a really long time before they come out. Where did, where did the story come from? Like, what, what inspired you to want to, to go into the, to do this story? Well, uh, two things. The, um, the original inspiration happened to me when I was living in New York, and I was, uh, you know, I woke up one Sunday, and I turned on the TV, I realized that the New York City Marathon was going on, and they were televising the last few miles of the um, elite group of women getting to the, to the finish line. And I don't know why, uh, but I started crying like a baby, uh, seeing these uh, women uh, just themselves, their body, their breath, and their desire, their passion, their inspiration to get to this finish line, uh, th that's all they had and that's all they were running for and they were giving everything they had in that moment. It made me extremely emotional. It made me so emotional that I thought, okay, I'm going to have to write something about this. 
And then, so I started with the end <laughs> of, the, of the story. And then I said, well, what kind of story do I want to say? Do I, do I want to tell? Um, and it took me no time to realize that uh, I had something that I really wanted to convey about uh, living with diabetes just because it's my experience, but more, uh, you know, just panning back. If you, you can apply everything that happens in good like this to any situation that requires, uh, you know, a little bit of attention or care or a lot of attention and care, uh, like in the case of type 1 diabetes. Um, because I thought, you know, maybe there, I always thought there is a reason why I have it. Uh, you know, earlier you were talking about why me, and I asked myself that question, and, um, you know, this story is one of the answers. I think that uh, I keep learning every day about myself thanks to diabetes. And uh, one of my passions is to share what I learn with as many people as possible. So I said, okay, I am going to build a story around this. Uh, and this story I wanted to end with the New York City Marathon because it was so <laughs> emotional and full of passion for me. So this is how it came about. No, and it's a beautifully written story. I hope people get good like this, and I'll be posting it on our blog. Um, but you mentioned living with diabetes. So tell us a little bit about your life experience living with diabetes. I know I read about your, uh, some of your story on Am I Diabetic, uh, the blog, and there's, there were some yeah. dramatic twists and turns. So when were you first diagnosed? And then just kind of tell us a little bit about your experience living with type, um, living with type 1 diabetes. I was diagnosed at seven uh, years old, and uh, it was a result of uh, emotional turmoil going on around my uh, my family, my uh, father and mother, and um, it was probably connected to a genetic predisposition of mine. I got mums. Mums turned into pancreatitis, and uh, soon enough, pancreatitis turned into uh, type 1 diabetes. And uh, I was seven years old, and uh, uh, the first years of, and the interesting thing, like I say in the in the blog, is that at least this was my experience, but I hear it in many uh, people who share an early onset. Is it wasn't that big of a deal for me, uh, so I understood what it was, and I thought, okay, I will have this thing, I will take care of this thing, but where the tragedy really hit hard and created, you know, uh, pain and, and turmoil was with my parents. And, uh, and they were extraordinary with me. They, they never made me feel uh, less than or sick or that I should be ashamed nothing. Then growing up, um, I went through all the phases of, uh, you know, good and bad diabetes management. In fact, you know, something that I will come out with uh, as soon as it's ready is a, a short memoir on uh, those experiences because uh, the blogs that you read and, and a few others have 
gotten such attention that I th- I thought okay maybe I have to uh, really, to bring these stories to to people in a more uh, organized way. Um, I was in my twenties after. I lost my father, uh, he killed himself, and it was a very tragic experience. Um, I basically went through the madness of denial and ignoring diabetes and um, never, never really being um, ashamed of it, but uh, more like using it. Um, at times uh, to have a justification to be not 100% present in life. And this is also where the inspiration for mm-hmm. Good Like This came from. Because I realized that, um, you know, I had in front of my eyes a tremendous example of, if you will, what not to do with my father losing his life to uh, his addiction to, co- to cocaine. Um, and then I realized that, you know, I was using insulin uh, to, you know, overcompensate knowingly. So I would find myself in these deep hypoglycemias. I was in hypoglycemic coma six times. One was when I was a, a teenager. It wasn't my fault. But five were a result of, you know, not your best diabetes management and, uh, and, and not your best choices. And, and I was aware of it. So I, I asked myself, well, wait, wait, wait a minute, why am I doing this? Why knowingly do I take too much insulin? And it wasn't long before I said, okay, maybe I have a desire to be a little bit out of life with a perfect excuse because I have a chronic disease. I mean, who's going to, you know, nobody can tell me that I'm an addict uh, and uh, nobody can really, uh, you know, my doctor can tell me, you know, be more careful and, and, you know, use different insulin ratios and so on and so forth. But, you know, it's a very righteous, victim-like position that is very protected, the one so that I found NAP, myself in. What's NAP that allowed you to kind of make the transition? Because I know people listening tonight, and if they have their call, if they want to make, uh, if they want to call in with questions, they can to three four seven two one five eight five five one. We have uh, coming up. We have Judith Jones Ambrosini, who's celebrating five decades living with type one diabetes, as well as Dr. Beverly S. Adler, known as Dr. Bev, who will be answering your questions about healthy coping. She's not only a psychologist and a certified diabetes educator, she's also a speaker, author, and she's also living with type one diabetes. But Peter, what, you know, because people, a lot of people are in denial. Some, a lot of people are burned out, you know, overwhelmed. They're hearing your story. I know they're connecting with it. <clears throat> what changed for you? Because I know you, you, you know, it's been an about face for you since that time. Yeah. What changed is, um, <laughs> it's, it's funny. What changed is thanks to my father. Uh, I remember when my father uh, died. Uh, I was, you know, completely numb and then absolutely lost by the 
whirlwind of emotions that were going on inside of me, but I had one firm point, and that was this thought, I shall not do what he did. So when years later I found myself, you know, being driven out of an emergency room after my fourth coma and, uh, you know, uh, laughing about it with my friends, all of a sudden I got this image of my father and I remember my voice and my thought saying, I shall not do what he did. Uh, I thought, oh, wow, I'm actually doing the exact same thing using what I already have inside of me instead of taking it from the outside. I am basically hurting myself. I am uh, slowly but surely self-destructing. I am... uh, making sure that I am in a constant hangover. I am making sure that I cannot be 100% present in reality. And that is what made me uh, stop and change. Interesting. Well, you know, I want to bring in our, one of our other guests, Judith Jones Ambrosini. She's a diabetes advocate. She's been living with type 1 diabetes for five decades. I know she's been listening in on this. She's writing a book and a blog called The Sisterhood of Diabetes. Judith, you've been hearing Peter's story now. I'm curious to get your reaction to it since you are also living with type 1 diabetes. Well, it's a, I'm staggering over it a little bit. Um, it, it's, uh, uh, he's really had some quite a few... Uh, he's been on the roller coaster for a long time and hopefully... Uh, Hopefully the roller coaster has evened out for him in a uh, uh, into a more uh, steady stream and slide. Um, um, well, for me, you know, I, I keep thinking as he was talking is that um, you know when when you're diagnosed. I mean, he was just a young child. I was a little older, as a teenager. But you're diagnosed and you're given this the triangle of care, which is food or diet, medication or insulin and exercise or activity, and that's the the golden triangle. But to me, the most important addition to that is to circle that triangle with attitude because the the attitude is what carries us from day to day and, 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 and life through life, especially with diabetes, because... Um, I know I'm jumping around here, but I'm thinking of uh, Marie and the the quilting needles, you know, thinking that needles are something that are a major part of our lives, uh, having diabetes, especially if you take insulin. Um, And years ago, the the needles were like quilting needles. I mean, they were these really sharp, very uh, not so sharp. You had to sharpen them yourself with a whetstone and boil syringes, glass syringes, and it was the dark ages of diabetes care. Um, but with quilting, um, you use the needles and then your, the project is finished. With diabetes and needles, it's tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, and we, we wake up with it and live with it every day. Uh, and our cure, or the way I see our cure today, because we have to have a cure to live with, is managing it well and taking good care of it and becoming allies with it or friends with it. And I think everyone with diabetes has a certain point in their lives where the, that light bulb, that aha moment where you become friends or become allies with your diabetes. 
And when you reach that moment, you put it in your backpack or your back pocket, and that's when your dreams can begin to come true and you realize you can do anything that everyone else can do in life. We just have to prepare a little bit more and always carry some quick carbs, but yes, we can indeed do anything and everything and as high as our dreams go. Well, um, I want to ask exactly. you, Judith, did you have an aha moment like uh, Peter did at any time? Did you, did you kind of, <clears throat> maybe he, not... Um, quite the same thing but I'm sure you know tonight we're really talking about healthy coping yeah we're talking about you know um, just finding passion in our life like you're saying and kind of facing these issues I'm wondering like was there an aha moment for you in this yeah there absolutely was it was many years ago you know as you said I've had type 1 diabetes for 51 years now and it was a moment uh, I guess I was in my early 20s and I woke up in the morning and I said Oh, no. Well, I used an expletive, but I won't say that on the radio. Uh, I said, oh, no, it's still here. I still have this diabetes. And that was the moment when I realized, yeah, it's here today, and it's going to be here tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Um, and it, that's what it, it changed my attitude, and it, it just sort of snapped me into the fact that I've got to be friends with it. I've got to take care of myself. I've got to educate myself. And I've got to be the very best that I can be. And through doing that, um, I became, I reached out for the diabetes community. And once I found that, I became a very strong advocate. And you're talking about passion. And diabetes has been my passion for many, many years. I, I live with it every day. I have wonderful, wonderful friends in the diabetes community um, I've joined many, many uh, boards and organizations in the diabetes world, um, and it sounds crazy, but it's almost like diabetes can sometimes be like a gift. No, I know, yeah. and I want to re- wait. Uh, hold that thought, for Peter. I want to also reach out and reach in and pull up our final guest, which is Dr. Beverly S. Adler. I know she's going to have a lot to say on this. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Bev. Hey, thank you very much, and hello to the divas and dudes. All right. Now, Peter, I didn't mean to cut you off. What were you going to say? Uh, Well, first of all, I love everything that was just said, um, and also I want to reassure everyone that, you know, those crazy years uh, luckily weren't that many, and that I have been doing really, really well, and I am doing really, really well because the realization came uh, you know, quick, and uh, and I was very happy to change my direction. And just like uh, it was just said, yes, my life changed when I looked at diabetes not as a monster that I had to tame, but as a something that I had to make to, to be friends with, uh, because it was to, going to be my companion. You know, every second of every day, and. Um, and that is a, uh, a beautiful attitude like, uh, you know, the, the, the fourth element in the, uh, in the triangle that was mentioned before. And in my experience, uh, attitude is very important. Uh, and what really completes the entire um, spectrum is awareness. What really changed my life is when I became aware of the various connections, emotional and physiological, that allow me to live 
my life at its best every day. And this is also what is the, uh, the, the major takeaway in Good Like This uh, for, for the character of Paul. I love it. Now, Dr. Bev, someone listening right now is saying, oh, good grief. Best friends with diabetes, it's not possible. They're stuck in why me, why me. How, how does someone transition to what Judith and Peter just said? Well, I'll share with you that, uh, and, my, and your uh, listeners, uh, I myself have type 1 diabetes. I've had it for 38 years. Complication-free, I'm happy to say. And I also had my own aha moment when I, you know, I'm going to say very shortly after I was diagnosed. And um, I, I was 20 at the time. And um, I had all sorts of, you know, the glucose tolerance test uh, before I was diagnosed. And uh, my mother, who uh, was a college professor, she had a student in one of her classes who'd been ill and undiagnosed and going through medical tests. And my results came back, and at the time, 1975, they called it juvenile diabetes. And my mother's student's diagnosis came back, brain tumor. And it put my diagnosis in perspective and I said from from then on I can live with this and I immediately was grounded with my diabetes that um, you know it wasn't the worst thing that could happen and I'm going to say that also pretty early on uh, people were not familiar with what diabetes really was and I became an informal educator. When people, when I would tell people about um, me having diabetes, I would have to educate them about diabetes. And you know, 35 years later, I became a certified diabetes educator. But I've been doing it lifelong, and it has been my passion. And I combined my uh, training in clinical psychology and my diabetes passion, and I put those two together to make that my field of specialty. So, I, feel, um, I feel that a lot of people look at people living with diabetes and they just want to say deal with it. They never, you know, I, I'm really so honored that Judith, Peter, and you, Dr. Bev, are willing to talk about this topic. I, I, I feel like we don't take enough time as a community to kind of address sometimes the day-to-day uh, living with it, and, and Peter being so honest was so powerful to me. I, I feel, you know, Marie Boswick's book is about breast cancer survivors. I feel when people have breast cancer, people embrace them. When people have diabetes, they start pointing at you to tell you what to eat. It's a totally different reaction, and I think, you know, when it comes to when it comes to managing it, spouses, uh, siblings, best friends think you should just do it. We don't give uh, people with diabetes kind of enough. Um, empathy and just allow them to kind of let their shield down and say something like Peter was saying about what was happening in his earlier life experience. I I do agree with you. And one of your guests was talking about the pity party. And uh, I think that is a wonderful idea for, for people with diabetes to be able to validate their negative feelings. Because like you say, most nobody wants to really hear how difficult it is for us to deal with the daily regimen and, and everything that goes with it. Just deal with it, and we do, but there can be residual negative feelings. And just being able to share with people who are um, sympathetic 
like a pity party, or it could be a family member, or it could be friends, whomever. It could be a support group, but just having to validate those negative feelings really releases a lot of the the negative, um, you know, uh, feelings <laughs> that go with it. You know, yeah, no, this seems this could be really overwhelming to people. People don't even know how to take the first step. And being honest with, it, I mean, I, I would, Peter, I would assume like the first, uh, you know, going, looking back at it, the book might have been a little bit of therapeutic for you, was it? Oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, I think everything I write is therapeutic. <laughs> and, and Judith, I know you're yes. you're kind of moving forward in advocacy with the Sisterhood of Diabetes. So has that, you know, in in doing what you're doing now, sharing stories of inspiration with women with type one diabetes who are li- who are pursuing active and and full lives, are is that kind of helped you through it as well? Uh, absolutely. And um, well, my book emphasizes. Um, female athletes with diabetes. So uh, I have stories of women, or shall I say girls slash women. My youngest is eight years old and my oldest is 94, and she just celebrated her 94th birthday, and she did a one-mile walk. Uh, So these women have certainly been an enormous inspiration uh, uh, to me, motivation, inspiration, and... and, um, uh, I love every one of them, and uh, I hope that they will inspire uh, many others once the book comes out. Um, right. May I may I add just one thing? I've been thinking about this ever since you spoke with Marie. Um, I won't say it now, but I have a terrific uh, kale recipe, <laughs> so I can <laughs> send it to me, and we'll put it on the blog for her. I will. I will. All right. Now, I mean, that's great because we were talking about hobbies earlier, Dr. Beth. Have you ever told patients who might be struggling with their diabetes to kind of like add some other things into their life? I mean, does it help to do quilting? Does it help to be a cook? Does it help to do Tai Chi? Would it help to be in, just take some acting classes? Yes, I think all of that are wonderful uh, choices. And, yes, I definitely encourage people to get out of themselves and stop focusing so much on all of their negative feelings and go out and join uh, nature, join a sport, join a group. Yes, I think that's a, a wonderful um, strategy to help, uh, you know, overcome, you know, the, the, the depression about having to live with diabetes. I also wanted to say that on the show, you know, um, your mother has been such a wonderful support to you, and I think that other mamas and and papas can be wonderful supports to their family members also. And the, the, the special part about it is knowing that you're not alone. And I think that's part of also the, the being depressed about diabetes is feeling that no one understands. And, um, yes, you have to walk through life yourself, but knowing that others are walking with you is, is, um, is, a, is a help, that you're not doing it alone. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I want to say, I wanna, yes. wait, I want to just say one thing about that. Uh, what I did, and my parents did nothing special. I have a brother living with type 1 diabetes, and we wanted to surround him uh, with the best amount of support we could, which was educating ourselves. So my parents, both my mother and father and myself, made a commitment to getting educated, and I think that's something that anyone could do. And when we did that, 
I think it changed everything because we don't expect my brother to be perfect every day. We expect my brother to have lows and highs and to, and to be a little off at times and we want to be and we're there with the right supplies and hopefully the right resources and, and sometimes just with the companionship to get him through those moments. And I hope people listening tonight realize that what we did is something that's very attainable uh, for someone living with diabetes, to be around someone living with diabetes. And I think if we could get back to this idea of you don't have to be perfect, I feel sometimes that's where the depression comes, Dr. Bev, is people putting on this, me assuming that you always have to be perfect. You can never have a low. You, you know, and, and, and that creates a little bit of conflict within someone. I, I do agree that if, if someone is unrealistic and thinking that they have to be perfect, and the, 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 the bottom line truth is none of us is perfect. And to get to that point will definitely make somebody feel a little less badly about themselves and, and contribute you know, uh, to improve self-esteem. You were talking before about pattern management mm-hmm. and if you have one number, let's say, that's high or low and it's out of context, okay, somebody can feel, um, uh, you know, depressed, that they are not perfect, that their number, you know, where did this number come from? And, and there are just wacky numbers that are you can't figure out. But when you do look at pattern management like you were talking about before, you can see that maybe these numbers that – out of context don't make any sense, but when you look at a, a broader perspective, you see that it does make sense, that there's a, a, that there's a pattern, that these numbers are not wacky out of the blue, that they, are, they happen frequently and due to a pattern. Once you can recognize a pattern, then you are now empowered and you can change whatever it is, whether it's your activity that's dropping you low or the, your, your, your insulin and carb ratio is not in tune for the meal, and so it's awfully high. But you can do an action to change. And once you recognize this pattern, and then you are now empowered. And having empowerment makes you feel um, no longer helpless to deal with diabetes, no longer hopeless, no longer depressed. I love it. Uh, and this is a powerful show, and I love all the guests who've been a part of it and, and sharing this message. You know, Peter and Judith, I want to ask you, this is the wrap-up for Don't Let Diabetes Kill Your Romance. I'm coming back in February. You're both married, so starting with you, Peter, tell everyone, I know a lot of people out there who've newly diagnosed or living with diabetes just don't think anyone would ever want to love them. So can you share a little bit um, in a minute or less what, you're, what it's like to be married living with diabetes? It's fantastic. Uh, <laughs> of course, yeah, it's true. It's true. I, I mean, uh, my life got extremely better um, when I met my wife, uh, Annie Wood. Uh, the, the first few days that we were together, she uh, got a book. Uh, without me knowing it, um, diabetes for uh, dumb, dummies or something like that. And then uh, she immediately was interested in the, uh, you know, in the subject matter. 
And uh, I went through some, you know, I was still, you know, uh, hitting some heavy lows and, uh, and it was together that we uh, found uh, what we had to do together and what I had to do to uh, get out of this pattern since we uh, have been talking about patterns a lot. And one, if I have to boil it down to one, you know, major uh, suggestion and advice for everyone is your diabetes is not a secret. So share it. Don't be um, ashamed of saying to your wife or to your work uh, colleague or to your boss, uh, look, I have this thing. And, you know, if you see me spacey uh, or extremely nervous, uh, just come to me and say, why don't you check your blood sugar level or uh, maybe you should do something with your diabetes and then I'll I'll take it from there. I love it. All right, Judith, give us the... Judith, give us the other yes. side of the story. You're, uh, you well, have a, my your story is I've been married to the greatest uh, type 3 or uh, diabetes wannabe, as we joke around, for almost 40 years, and he has had this life with me of picking, finding my, my test strips uh, in every room and closet and cabinet in the house, and he has never once complained. He is now putting them in a bowl, and he's telling me that I should make a necklace out of them. Um, life has been wonderful. I, I can't imagine life without him. And in fact, tomorrow I am taking him to see Janis Joplin on Broadway. All right. So that's, that's pretty Bev, passionate, I'm, right? <laughs> yeah. And Dr. Bev, I'm going to end for you because you have this wonderful thing on your um, blog that I think is wonderful. While nobody would choose to have diabetes, if you do, the best coping strategies are, put, are to put your diagnosis in perspective. You can live with it. Or, or try thinking... Why not me and adopt a positive attitude or try looking at it from a spiritual perspective and appreciate the blessings in life. You certainly are a blessing in my life, Dr. Bev. Thank you for being a part of the show. I want to thank everyone for joining us on the show tonight. Now, don't miss November's Diabetes Roundtable podcast scheduled for Tuesday, November 12th. Visit David Beddick's Facebook fan page and group pages for more show details and check out all my videos on Mr. David Beck's YouTube channel. Remember, every diva and every dude has an entourage, and I'm so glad to be part of yours. Thanks for listening.